and waiting for Christmas, and it's almost here. And yet, as that candle reading said, that's our text for this morning, that we have been working through, through a series this whole month that God came near. This thing called incarnation in theological terms, that God took on human flesh. Incarnation. The, his, his deity and his humanity joined together two natures in one person. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is fully divine and fully human. As we've considered that, what is this all about? What is God doing? We've seen that God came near Emmanuel. God with us. God came near to show us. In Jesus, he shows us the Father. God came near in Jesus. He, he shows us what real humanity, in his humanity, is. There are things about our broken humanity that aren't essential humanity. What God always created humanity in his image, male and female, to be. We see that in Jesus. We see in Jesus as well how we can live as he lived, fully human, not pushing the God button, not relying on his deity in his human life, but living fully human, hungry, weary, tired, tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, because he lives a fully, genuinely human life by the Spirit of the Lord which is upon him. And those who believe in Jesus can share in his then abundant life because the Spirit of God is also not merely upon us but indwelling us because of Jesus. And so finally we come to the Sunday just before Christmas. And I knew you would be here this morning. Well, not necessarily you, you, the way that God knows you would be here this morning. But I knew we would be gathering this morning and the passage that I wanted to share with us, again, continuing that theme, the incarnation, God came near, I wanted it to be this one out of Galatians chapter 4. One more aspect, one more turn, one more part of the reason God came near, and it's simply this. God came near to bring you near. God came near to us to bring us near to him. God came near in order to bring us home. That which we long for. That which we yearn for, that which we don't yet see, things aren't as they're supposed to be. God came near to bring us home. Let's read about it in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. And if you're using the church Bible there in front of you, I'd like you to follow along. If you use that church Bible, you'll find us on page 974. 974, Galatians chapter 4, beginning in... Verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave or servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. 
Lord, would you open your word up to us this morning? Father, would you show us something more out of the truth of your word and what you have done for us in Jesus? You have redeemed us. You have transformed us. You have changed our standing before you. Father, would you open that up today that our, our, our confidence in you would be deeper. Our trust in you would be fuller. Our, our, our life with you would be richer because of what it is here that you have done for us in Jesus our Savior. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. God came near. This passage opens up just um, there's a page that I'm looking for that I lost. There's a there's a there's a Christmas song that the passage kind of picks up a a a, a theme of. Perhaps you've heard of it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their their old familiar carols play and mild and sweet. The songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men and and. Yeah, we love to sing. How many like to sing Christmas carols? Yeah? I like to sing. I love this time of year because we get to sing those familiar carols again. And yet, and yet, this song, and I like this song because it dares to raise this question. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward man. Wait a minute, all that we sing about, joy to the world. Wait, it's not joyful yet. Peace on earth, goodwill toward one, no, not in, not in this world, not here, not now, not in this moment. People talk about division as they seek to stir it up even more, to push one agenda or another. Where is this? Peace on earth, goodwill toward man. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for it not unlike that that time in Israel's captivity. Waiting for that golden age, the kingdom that the prophets had promised. Not unlike those quiet years from Malachi all the way to Matthew. When the prophets are silent. As the earth and Israel await God's redemption. But it would come. Humanity is enslaved, the text says. Humanity is stuck in our own brokenness. And it plays out in a couple of different ways, religious or not religious. For the religious and in Israel, that that devotion to God that had been handed down to them through Moses had turned into the traditions of men, had turned into the religion of the Jews as the Bible refers to it in the first century. And in that religion, people are trying to keep a list of things that they'll do or things that they won't do in order that they might be acceptable before God. Or, peoples across the world, throughout the Roman Empire, are doing their own thing, their way, seeking fulfillment, even serving gods as they have created them out of their own imagination, serving so-called God while they pursue their ambitions 
earnestly hoping that that could provide them fulfillment and yet leaving them empty, leaving them hungry. There is no peace on earth. And then rang the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill toward man. There's a waiting because there is a coming. And in the midst of that greatest need, in the midst of a, of a dark hour, our text says that while we were enslaved to the elementary principles of, of vainly trying to please God and be accepted or vainly pursuing our own desires, wishing we could find our own fulfillment. In those basic principles of broken humanity in a broken world, but God. That's what we were, but God, in the fullness of time, changes everything. That phrase, in the fullness of time, what I want to do in this passage, there's, there's, a, there's a whole series of phrases, and I want to work through these phrases and just unpack them a little bit. Because what, God, what Paul has done here, what the apostle has done in, in Galatians chapter 4, is he's written a letter to an, to an early church, a young church. This is one of the first letters of the New Testament. One of the church, first churches formed, or churches in this region, formed outside of Israel and Jerusalem. And this new church, this, this young church is, is trying to understand and begin to step into what it is that God has done. And so Paul, in the midst of that conversation with them, he gives them this nutshell. This is what God has done in the gospel. This is what that center of the universe, the nativity, is all about. While we were enslaved... In our own way, in our own rebellion, in the fullness of time. The fullness of time chronologically. The fullness of time in the sense that it is right on time, right according to the schedule, right according to the calendar, as I mentioned to the kids in brief. You see, 450 years earlier, well, no, a little longer than that, but the angel Gabriel, yeah, that angel Gabriel, the same one that shows up to Joseph and to Mary, that angel Gabriel first appears over 450 years earlier to the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament in the midst of captivity. And he tells this prophet that there is a series of 490 years that are going to be the completion of God's working, the restoration of all, of, of all things, the putting away of iniquity forever. Humanity restored. And of that 480 years, well, there's going to be a break because after 483 years of the 490, 483 years, the Messiah is going to be cut off. So he says, from 483 years from the time when the decree goes out to restore Jerusalem, Daniel, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Okay? So now, exactly 450 years, and so I'm not going to go through this for you. You don't want me to go through it for you. But some have calculated down to the day. 483 years from when that decree went forth, Jesus is crucified. Now back that up 33 years and 450 years after 
that decree that the angel Gabriel tells the prophet Daniel about 450 years later, right on time, so at age 30 he can begin his three public years of ministry. And at the conclusion of that public ministry, after three years, Jesus will be cut off, not for his own sins, but for ours. So right on time, at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Fulfilling all things that were written as he lives his life now in the 30 years prior, in the three years of public ministry, again and again, the gospel writers write, so that what was written in the prophets could be fulfilled. It's the fullness of time, prophetically, chronologically. Not only that, but circumstantially. At this time, at this moment in history, God has ordered the world in a particular way. The Roman Empire rules the known world. And the gospel spreads like wildfire through this empire because there's a law and order. There's a Roman citizenship, in fact, that if some of those messengers of this good news, if they are Roman citizens, that will give them access far and wide. Uh, traveling on very nice new highways, very wonderful network of Roman roads that make the movement of people and news from one place to another very easily. To be communicated in a shared universal language, the Greek language, kind of like the way that in many parts of the world, English is almost a universal language today. You can travel all over the world and find somebody that can speak English and converse with them. Even greater than that was the extent that Greek was used throughout the Roman Empire in the first century. In the fullness of time, God had circumstantially prepared the world for this good news that he was bringing. In the fullness of time, theologically, this is the center of God's universe. We date our calendar by it still, B.C. and A.D., before Christ and Anno Domino in the year of our Lord, that right in the midst of Caesar Augustus' reign, was the center of God's universe. Right in the closing years of the life of Herod the Great Pretender, that generation's Antichrist would die because the true Christ had come. Right in the midst of a little village called Bethlehem, a few miles outside Jerusalem, that was the center of God's universe because in the fullness of time, God was here doing everything that he'd said. God was keeping his time. God was keeping his word. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. I want to pause here and just ask the question, pose the question, what are you waiting for? I know some of you are in circumstances that feel something like those quiet years between Malachi and Matthew, and you're waiting to hear from God. You might be experiencing something in life that feels in some ways kind of like that exile period that Daniel was in. And you're needing God to intervene. You're needing God to restore things that unless he restores, unless God does something miraculous here, this circumstance cannot be changed. And you're waiting for God to show up and you're still waiting. But I can assure you of this out of God's word, that God does act in his fullness of time. He lays it out for us across the whole scripture here in the middle in that moment. 
God wasn't saying, oh, God wasn't doing the nativity the way that some of us do Christmas shopping. Well, the day's almost her, here. I better get it together. I better then get together and do something. I better get organized. No, no. God is working his plan all the way through so that at just the moment that he has prepared, in fact, he announced it over 450 years earlier, just at this moment, God would send forth his son. Now pause there for a minute. God would send forth his son. The son already was. We've talked about in previous weeks, the son isn't created here at his birth. The son of God has existed since before the foundation of the world. And yet he is sent from heaven here at this time. And so we're back to John 1 again. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And that word, that living word of God, the very expression of God, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into our neighborhood. God came near. Emmanuel, God with us. God sent his son, as Philippians 2 says, that he didn't hold on to his deity, but he laid it aside. And he took upon himself humanity. He didn't didn't cease to be God when he took on humanity, but he laid aside, think of it like a king's robes. He lays aside the rights and recognition, authorities and prerogative of his deity. And he comes in humanity as human. He came in the likeness of man, in the form of a servant. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. Why? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have that everlasting life. We were enslaved. But God, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son to be born of a woman. Well, that's kind of part and partial of this whole coming in humanity, right? But think about it for a minute. What is this whole human birth thing like? You see, I've been there. (laughs) Now, some of you ladies are saying, wait a minute, Bob. No, you haven't been there. You may have been in the room, but you haven't been there. The way that moms of children have been there, right? Yeah, that's true. But I heard about a previous generation when the, when, the, when the men, the dads, didn't have to be in the room. They could be over there in the waiting area, you know, with the, all the other anxious dads. And they could tell dumb jokes and tell stories and just be anxious and fret. And then one after another, they get to hand out cigars and pat each other on the back like they'd done a really great thing and a huge accomplishment. When she'd done all the work, right? But God said that in this broken fallen humanity that there was going to be multiplied pain in childbirth. It doesn't say that that is a punishment. It says that that's a new reality in a broken and fallen humanity. This is going to be part of that. And when God sends his son, that's the way in which he sends him. This is the epitome of human suffering and weakness and inability that God sends. You know, the the childbirth process in the first century, even sometimes today, that childbirth process is not a time of great joy, but a time of great grief and sorrow. 
Because maybe a child is lost. Maybe the mother is lost. Sometimes both. And yet that's the entrance. When God sent forth his son, he does it that way. Our way. In the epitome of weakness and human suffering. Born of a woman. There's Bramley's old English hymn that I quoted a few weeks ago. Oh, the wonders of wonders which none can unfold. The ancient of days is an hour or two old. The maker of all things is himself made of the earth. This man is worshipped by angels. And God comes to birth. Imagine it. Son of God himself comes into our humanity that way, born of a woman, born under the law. The law is the very expression of God's will and God's character. And the one who best himself shows the law is the one who now submits himself under it, with us as human. God himself, taking on humanity, becomes answerable to that which governs humanity. Born of a woman, born under the law, and fulfilling it, keeping it. Not only the moral aspects of it that reveal his, his likeness as the son, but also even the ceremonial requirements and all these itsy-bitsy things, don't eat that, don't do that, and the Lord of the Sabbath still honors God in the law, even on the Sabbath. You know, that, that says something to our obedience. Not that I'm looking for ways to keep the law. Not that I'm going to make a list of all the things that I must then do to obey God's law. But no, but when I see in the word God calling me to something, when I see God laying out for me obedience that I should as his child walk in, do you see how Jesus' own obedience to the Father, even as human and under the law, you see what he does in elevating our obedience into worship? God, because this is your word, because I'm your child, I want your will, not my will, to be done, even in this humanity. So we don't seek to make ourselves approved by God by the things that we do and don't do, but we do want to know his will and walk in it that our lives would be worship of the one who is worthy. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are born under law. This is what it's about. This is what the nativity is for. This is, the, this is why Jesus is coming, that he might redeem those who were under law. He lives for us a perfectly human and wonderfully right life and then having no guilt before God himself, no further accountability to the law, nothing that he has to answer for, he then takes the penalty of that law that is against us for us and he dies. Nobody takes his life from us, from him. He lays it down of his own accord. Even his death on the cross is unique and different. You don't see life fully, slowly pulled out of him, but instead you see him crying out in a loud, victorious voice, it is finished, and then he breathes his last, and he gave up his spirit. He, he willingly enters even death and that just separation from God that the law requires against us, 
in our place. And as he does that, he fulfills the justice of God's law against humanity. Don't think that God has done anything wrong in bringing you home. That God has ignored any justice in allowing you into heaven. God has not swept things under the carpet, but the debt has been paid in full so that you have every right to be in God's presence. Do you ever think about what it would be like to stand before God? And there you are, standing before God, and knowing you as you know you, knowing that, okay, maybe I had the other people around me fooled, but God knows and I know that I really shouldn't be here. You ever feel like that? Come on. God knows and I know that I really shouldn't be here, but somehow he made it work out. Right? That isn't, that isn't reality. The way God has worked it out, you have every right to be there because of Jesus. God intends you to be fully, unashamedly in his presence because of Jesus. What do you think God thinks when he thinks of you? Yeah, I guess we'll let him in. Yeah, they don't fully, you know, really measure up, but, uh, you know, I'm good and I'm gracious, so whatever. What do you think God thinks when he thinks of you? He thinks of you as redeemed by his son. He thinks of you as that one for whom he paid the most that could possibly be paid. He thinks of you as, as, as Peter describes as his unique or maybe this King James word fits better for some of you, his peculiar treasure. Okay? That's how God thinks of you. In fact, Paul prays for the Ephesian church. He prays this way, among other things, that your eyes would be opened so that you would realize, you could spiritually understand what are the riches of God's inheritance in the church. In believers. Now, we normally think about this great inheritance that God has reserved for us as believers. That God has a grand and glorious future for us. But this passage tells us that God looks at it this way. God looks at it that we are his grand and glorious future in the same way that, that maybe a grandparent. I guess I can think of it in these terms now because I'm, I'm that old. And I long for that time in the future when I could have those couple of grandsons that we have together with me and we could do things. And I would enjoy their com company and I would enjoy them discovering a little bit more about me as I learn things about them, as we, as we share experiences long into the future together. I long for that. I can understand that kind of delight. That's God's inheritance in you. I tell you that just to, just to try to bring home the point that that's the kind of thoughts that God thinks when God thinks of you. You are his delight. That's why that manger. That's why nativity. That's why at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born into humanity, born of a woman, under law, to redeem those who were under law, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. 
He bore it in our place, paid it in full, that we would have access, every access before him. In fact, he expresses that this way. To redeem those born under law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, adoption's a wonderful metaphor. Adoption's a wonderful image. I, I'm thrilled that several families in our church have, have, have seen a need in a child's life. And they have taken that child and they have officially, formally, legally gone through all the hoops. Over, often t- it's a couple of year process oftentimes. And they've done everything that they could to take that child into their own family as their own. And they change the family tree. They change a child's destiny. They change a child's future when they do that. It's a wonderful thing. There's something of this adoption in that. But it's even more. Part of the background of Paul's mention of adoption here, that he might adopt you and I as sons, and don't get hung up on the gender thing. I'm going to explain that in a minute. It's, it's more than he adopts you as sons and daughters. It's more than that. The, the image is the Roman adoptio. And adoptio has the idea of placing a child that grew up as a child. And this is the image that Paul's thinking of when he says we were, we were like children. We were like servants in the home. A child in the home of a, of, a, of, a, of a Greco-Roman estate doesn't have rights, doesn't have privileges to the same extent as when they are older, when they come of age. The child, in fact, is bossed around by the servants. Now, if the servants are wise, they will handle that carefully because there's going to come a day when the child will grow up and the child then as an heir will boss around the servants instead, right? So, but th- when that happens, when that occurs, that placing of a child now as a son, as an heir, we get a picture of that in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you're familiar with the story where the son, they're, 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 there's a family with two sons. This, this father has this estate, a family estate, and he has two boys who are going to inherit. The older one is probably going to take first responsibility for that farm. And so then other property, other wealth is going to be given to the other son. And so that other son, the younger son, he comes along and he says, you know, Dad, I'd like to, if I could, I'd like to go ahead and get my inheritance now so that I can, you know, head off and I can have my own start in life and I can make my own way. I'd just like to get on with my life, if that'd be okay with you. And the father, regrettably, says, okay, you can have what it is you think that you want. And the son takes this newfound wealth and off he goes into the city and he squanders it and loses it all. And he ends up then as a hired hand, actually not a hired hand, because of his debts, an indentured servant of a pig farmer, slopping the pigs, which pigs are eating better than he is. And while he's doing that, while he's looking hungrily at the good food and slop the pigs are eating, he says, you know, my father's servants are treated better than this. I could go back to my father. My father is such a good and gracious man. Although that I've squandered my inheritance and any right as a son, I could go back and say, Father, could you please take me on as one of your hired hands? And my father is gracious. My father would do that. 
And so he starts out, and he heads home, and the father sees him coming down the road. And this father, in his long, flowing robes, this patriarch of the family, he runs down the road to meet him. Now, the patriarch of a family in his long robes did not run. But the father does. He runs to the son. And the son begins his spiel. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to be your son. But would you take... And his father just cuts him off. And he says, bring the first robe. Bring the robe that is for the, for the one who is in the first position. Kind of like Joseph's long-sleeved robe of many colors. This is a robe that is status. This is not a worker's robe. This is not even a foreman's robe. This is a son's robe. And he puts it on him. And he's placing him as a son over his estate. And he says, put a ring on his finger. And it's a special ring. It's a family seal ring. Think of it like a signet ring. That what he is giving his son who has returned, who is dead and is now alive, is he is giving him the rights to function on behalf of the father in the midst of the community for the good of the family business. Servants don't have that right. But the, 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 the child is now placed as a son and an heir. That's what's going on there. And that's what God has done with us. God has put us in his family as his heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He, is God, he has given us a standing that we do not realize, we do not recognize, we don't grasp it yet. But it can be as simple as this. You're the ones, you're the ones to carry out the Father's business. That's why you participate. That's why the Spirit leads you in ways like are outlined in that bulletin, in ways that you gave yourselves and what you had for the sake of others, because you are the ones by whom God carries out his family business, because you've been adopted. That adoption goes on into Jewish background, way back into the Old Testament. There's images where God tells Pharaoh, you let me, my people go because Israel is my firstborn son. God chose the people and he said, these ones are mine. God chose David. He said, David, I'm going to take one of your sons and I'm going to make your son my son. And all of that adoption from Abraham and from, and from David is wrapped up in this thing we call the new covenant where those who were not God's people have been made, Peter says, the people of God. God has made us intentionally his own. And all of the Trinity all of the triune Godhead is involved in this. God has made us his own by sending his son. The son redeems and sends the spirit, and the spirit causes us to call out to our father. The spirit activates and actuates, and he energizes, and he fulfills so that we experience this spiritual relationship already with God our father in Christ by the spirit. The spirit in us calls out toward God, pulls our hearts to him Abba, Father. He redeemed us not merely to change our future address. He redeemed us that we might receive his adoption as sons. You know, there's something else with that sending of his spirit that God has done that our adoption cannot. Children grow up into who they are by virtue of nurture and nature. 
who they are intrinsically and genetically, as well as the environment and the people in their lives who shape and mold and guide them. Both of those are part of who children grow up to be. And when a family takes a child into their family, officially and formally and legally and in adoption, and this child becomes their own child, and they have changed the nurture. They didn't change the genetics. They didn't change the nature. There are aspects of the future family tree that would still bear its fruit, even as it can be shaped and molded by a healthy environment and a loving family. What God has done is he he has given us that loving family. It's called church. And he has transformed us internally within our spirits by the sending of God's own spirit to draw us into this new life. That's God's adoption that goes further than any other kind of adoption we know so that God has done this. God has changed our guilt into his glory. God has changed our shame into his honor. He has lifted us. God has done more than merely free us from slavery. God has made us his own family. He's taken those who are far off and he's brought them near. He's taken aliens and he's made them members of his own household. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. When you think of Christmas, you think of Jesus coming. You think of the the wonder of God's miraculous working in this birth and even in his life. And then he's going to die. There's more than that in a babe laid in a manger. I, le- I gave this to you in, your, in, in, in the notes that are in the bulletin, but let me just kind of unpack it now. Let's take the same verse with these, with these same um, key phrases and see what God has done through his apostle here. There's nativity right in the center of it all, that the Son of God is born in human humility in order to redeem fallen humanity. Now let's back up one step. God sent his Son in human humility, to save fallen humanity. God sent his son to adopt us as sons. God sent his son to make us his own. God gave up his own in order to make us his own. You see the parallel that, that, that God has done here. We were enslaved, but because God sent his son, born in human humility, to redeem fallen humanity for our adoption as sons so that you are no longer slaves, but heirs. We were enslaved, no longer slaves. Now we are instead heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. God sent his son to make you his sons in that heirship adoption sense. Children of the true and the living God. That's what God has done for us in Jesus When you think about Christmas, when you think about the awesome humility from the highest of heaven to a lowly cattle trough, it's to take us out of longing for the slop of the pigs and welcoming us back home where God made us to belong. God came near to bring you near. God came near 
to bring us home. Now, that gives us hope. That, that, that transforms even the gifts that we give and the love in which we give them for the sake of others in carrying out the family business that, of God who has made us his family. But perhaps I'm overstepping. Perhaps you're here this morning. You've come with family or friends or God just brought you to come along to church this morning or again or still. And yet, this is really not yours. What I'm describing is an interesting turn on Christmas for you, but this is not yours. There was a thing that we did for my wife several, a few years ago, just a couple of years ago, actually. Be careful how I describe this. She was about to reach a particular birthday, one of those milestone birthdays. I'll not say which one. And so we have, a, we have a, an annual staff ministry leader Christmas party, and often there's a gift exchange. Sometimes it's a white elephant. Sometimes it's inexpensive but nice and thoughtful gifts. We made this one of those. And, and you know how it works. Everybody gets a number, and then according to your number, you can either choose a gift that somebody else has opened, or you can take a new gift under the tree and open that one. Well, we'd arranged it so that when it came time, Julie ends up with the number one. She's to choose the first gift. Because remember, her birthday is coming. And she opens the first gift. That's a very nice, nice gift, something that she would like. All right. Well, next person who chooses a number, they steal Julie's gift. They choose the gift that Julie opened so that she has to choose another one. And that one is also for Julie. It's for her. And she takes that one. She says, yeah, I'll own this one. This one will be mine. And then number three takes that so that she gets to open another one. And Julie keeps opening one gift after another, you see. And oh, somewhere along the line there, we, we start singing happy birthday because she's not getting it. <laughs> and we sing happy birthday, and she says she was wondering to me, what, 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 I don't know why you were singing happy birthday. You know, she even missed the Jesus birthday thing, I, I guess. But one of her friends leaned in and said, Julie, they're all for you. But they would only be for her. They, would only, they, they, they could be for her, but they would only be hers if she believed that. That if she believed that those people in that room loved her and they had brought a gift that night for her early for her birthday. Right? And they did. And when she believed that and received them, all of those gifts became hers. And so it is for you and I. This is true. This is what God has done. And yet, what God has done for you becomes yours when you believe, yes, I believe God concerning his son Jesus. I believe God that he sent Jesus for me. I believe him for that. And all that he has given then I'll receive from him. I believe him. And it becomes ours. And as it becomes ours and all this positional change, the standing before him automatically happens and we begin to experience it as that spirit of the true and living God calls out in our hearts, welcome home. Come to the Father. I don't know, maybe he's calling in your heart right now. Come home. Come to the Father. Maybe today, maybe this Christmas, I'd like to pray for us. Father, would you take this truth 
about the sending of your son. In the fullness of time, at just the right time, that you are fully in charge of our times. You sent him as us for us to redeem us and to bring us home as your own. And Father, I want to pray especially today. Lord, I pray for your church that we would get that. We would get just a clearer glimpse of how it is that you treasure us, that you would do this for us. But Father, I pray today especially for someone or those here this morning that this is your gift with the tag with their name. And yet they'll have to believe that you would really give that to them before they can receive it and live in it. Father, I pray that this morning, that you by your Spirit would draw them to yourself this morning, in this Christmas. This would be their fullness of time when you call them to yourself. Thank you, Father, for coming near to us in Jesus our Savior. Thank you, Father, for bringing us near to you. Lord, we pray that now as, again, gifts and offerings are received, that these would be used for the inviting of others to come to Father's house, that these gifts would be received both in this church and in this community and around the world. 